0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Many people in our food community have been seriously impacted by Superstorm Sandy, and our hearts go out to them. At HRN, we've been covering these stories since the storm hit. To learn more, visit our website at www.heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage-breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit HeritageFoodsUSA.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Good afternoon and welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from the back of Roberto's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn, where brunch is now being served. And you know what? They have a really good polenta dish, which they slipped me today. It was awesome. Anyway, today we're going to be talking trash with uh, Lily Kelly. <laughs> Yep, talking trash, my favorite occupation. Um, You're the first
3: one to ever make that joke. (laughs)
2: Oh, come on. Ever. (laughs) Yeah, right, I can imagine. Um, Lily is the interim director for Global Green USA's New York office and the Coalition for Resource Recovery. Prior to joining Global Green USA, she contributed to various environmental and social stewardship projects with both uh, for and nonprofit agencies, including the Environmental Defense Fund, Natural Resources Defense Council, the Majora Carter Group, and the Earth Institute. Welcome, Lily. Thanks for being here making the trek from Queens out to Brooklyn. Not so easy today. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Sure. So um, give us a little bit of background on the Coalition for Resource Recovery because that's the trash part of our our talk here. We're talking about uh, recycling, repurposing, uh, reclaiming materials. Um, so give us a little background on the on the group and on Global Green.
3: Sure, absolutely. Um, well, first off, Global Green is actually the U.S. affiliate of an international group called Green Cross International that was started in 1993 by Mikhail Gorbachev. I know, I
2: read that. I couldn't believe that. How forward-thinking was that, dude? Right? I mean, we weren't thinking about any of this stuff in 1993, I can guarantee you. I mean... Yeah, yeah it wasn't no, absolutely.
3: Well, and it's, it's pretty remarkable because Green Cross International actually has three focuses and all of which were pretty forward thinking, even for 1993, um, which was one focusing on reducing stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction. which obviously was an issue close to Gorbachev's heart. Yeah, Um, And then also providing clean water, um, particularly in developing countries. And then the third and sort of most relevant for uh, Global Green is controlling climate change. Uh So here in the US, we have four offices. Our our headquarters is in LA. Uh, We have an office in DC, an office in New Orleans, an office here in New York City. Uh, And all four of those programs are tailored more or less to each city that they're in. Um, But the thread that ties it all together is climate change um, we work on urban planning we work on uh, retrofitting and making houses more energy efficient in particular in New Orleans and here in New York City we work on recycling which actually has a really significant greenhouse gas impact amazing uh, a lot of people don't really put those two together and, and there are a lot of other benefits to recycling as well sure. but um, certainly the greenhouse gas impact is really important
2: can you do you have any figures on that I do indeed so uh, <laughs> all right <laughs> uh, I came up with some kind of niche. One's myself, but right. I know there's a lot of numbers out there
3: (laughs) on this, and and you know it's it's actually great that there's so much attention being paid to it. Um, We usually use the EPA's numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a tool called WARM, uh, the waste reduction model, uh, and they figure out how much uh, greenhouse gas is saved both by using uh, recovered materials as an input instead of virgin materials, and also what they look at, and this is one of the biggest impacts, is the methane that gets released
2: when it's put in a landfill. Well, the methane comes about because organic... Stuff is, in other words, food that would, I mean, things that would normally be composted, because isn't that what's creating the methane? It's not inert plastics or...
3: Exactly, exactly. And so that's actually partly why we focus so much um, on paper and composting, Mm -hmm. uh, is because those are the biggest bang for the buck in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. When things like plastic or glass get put in the landfill, they don't necessarily generate a lot of methane. Uh, Paper does, Food really does.
2: What's paper? I'm surprised by that. Because it's made out of tree pulp? Yeah. I mean, it's Literally. an organic
3: material. So uh-huh. as it decomposes, it releases methane. And the reason, by the way, to belabor the methane point is that it's a 25 to 27 times more potent a greenhouse gas than CO2. Uh-huh. Wow. So even when they have methane capture on landfills, the best systems can only get about 50%. Right. So that's still a lot of methane being released in the atmosphere, and it's bad news.
2: Well, interesting. See, now, th- this plays right into the cattle industry, which claims that cattle, of course, why, we only release 2% of the methane. <laughs> they were always pointing the finger somewhere else. But, I mean, in this case, they actually have a point that it's landfill, it's dumps, it's not composting. So when you run a big, I'm going to go right off, you know, right off the rails here. But when you run a big composting um, site, like how do you? Are there me- mechanisms? Because, in the, for instance, in the cattle industry, they will capture it in a pond, and they have you know bacteria that go in there, and they they have a big tarp over it, and then they capture it and they refine it and they use it in their power grid. So is that the same thing you can do in a compost? a big compost uh, situation and you, how you many can. people are doing it?
3: <laughs> Not nearly enough. That's what I'm um, Especially in around New York City, um, one of the things that we've been focusing on is bringing more of that infrastructure closer to the city. Uh-huh. There's actually, uh, just to get to your question, there are a few different ways to do it. Um, you can have what's called uh, anaerobic digestion, which is uh, what the what cattle farmer is. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so you take organic matter, you put it in basically a big silo, it's enclosed, and you put it in an anaerobic situation, which means there's no oxygen mm-hmm. Um, and as it decomposes, you have little microbes doing their thing, and that generates biogas, which can be used to, uh, you know, go into the grid for natural gas purposes. So right. you can use it for your stove or power a garbage truck with it. There's a lot they're, of different ways to do it. They're
2: using – I mean, the cattle industry, that uh, the plant that I visit, they're using it to actually power electricity. I mean, they – Literally, I don't know how that magically happens. It's a but great idea, and it's yeah. something
3: we'd really like to see happen in New
2: York. Um, and it would be nice if more of the cattle industry did it as well, right? Or absolutely. the livestock industry. There's a
3: lot of opportunity for it. Um, what's happening now in New York is mostly... Uh, It's being sent down to Peninsula Compost in Delaware, Mm -hmm. which is a different kind of process. It's what's called, um, it's a gore process, what they call it. It's uh, what's called aerated static pile. The reason it's called the gore process is because they heap up all the compostable material in these big, long piles uh-huh. uh they are aerated from below and they cover it with Gore-Tex so if, for those of you who've ever worn like a Gore-Tex rain jacket sure you know it releases uh the moisture but it keeps the smell in uh-huh. so that's the purpose of the com- for composting is it's not stinky right which is always a big factor when that you're is a problem sure. waste. absolutely yep so if you see uh, folks composting in New York City that's where it's going by mm. and
2: large. You know, I compost I grew up composting and um because I grew up in the country and uh we had one of those boxes and you just heave all your stuff and my mother always had this can full of rotting scraps on the counter, which I found completely disgusting and objectionable. <laughs> um of course now I really appreciate it because there's there's soil, there's like really rich soil, you know, from ten years ago. Oh yeah. But um anyway <laughs> but I, I didn't I have never noticed that my compost box was particularly stinky. And so, and I know they have those ones where you can turn them, a drum turns, and that somehow if magically you do dissipates it, that. If you
3: do it right, it shouldn't smell bad. That's yeah. the trick of it. And so... Uh, a lot of the processes mix it with yard waste, things like wood chips and stuff like that. And if you get the proportions right, the smell actually isn't, isn't it's that It's not strong. bad. Yeah. It's just the really fresh stuff that comes in. That's a little rotten. It's garbage. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the way your garbage, like can garbage can smells.
2: Yeah, right, exactly. That's yeah, okay. So now um, in your group, the Coalition for Resource Recovery, um, I'm going to quote something from your website, uh, aims to find national solutions for resource and asset recovery, and they you facilitate 70% waste diversion in targeted... I mean, this is your goal. Yeah, yeah. And targeted urban markets by 2020 to further national recovery solutions. I guess what I'm particularly into, and then by working with the accommodation, that's hotels, and right? Mm-hmm. Accommodation, retail, and food service sectors, you specifically seek to divert 6 million tons of waste per year. That doesn't actually seem, frankly, like all that much, but you can tell me better. Um, with a potential of $256 million in savings. Again, these are not earth-shattering numbers to me. Maybe I'm uh, jaded, but anyway. Um, uh-huh. Reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 16 million tons, and that's T-O-N-S, and I actually had to look this up, the T-O-N-S, Nes is a different measure. It is. Um, So, um, and according to a CO2 report that I read, published by The Hague in 2012, we, each person, each man, woman, and child in the United States, produces 17.3 tons, T-O-N-N-E-S. Which is bigger. Which is the bigger, right, of greenhouse gases per capita, Ah, per person. ah. Each one of us is doing this. How (laughs) is that possible that I am generating, I know that I am not making that much methane. no. A
3: lot of it has to do with things that um, individuals don't necessarily have a lot of control over, things like uh, industrial activities and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And that's actually one of the reasons why we do what we do, is that there's a lot that can be done by an individual making certain lifestyle choices. Um, But what we're trying to do is uh, we're kind of a research and uh, development-oriented group. I I think that's what makes us unique. Uh We don't just try to get the bins out there. There's a lot of people doing that. Um, and which is great, and that is a big part of what we do, but a lot of what we're doing is trying to document how well this is working. right? And the idea is that if we can show, for example, I'm just going to use our food service packaging program here. So our food service packaging program is looking at uh, packaging items like coffee cups, um, mm-hmm. burger clamshells, things like that that come into contact with food. Uh, there's been some uncertainty by paper mills about whether they can take it, after it's come into contact with food, which is understandable. Um, and what we've found by doing lab scale testing is that it 's actually fine, and a lot of the reason for that is that uh, the paper repulping process sterilizes everything
2: I would think so, yeah, right,
3: yeah, so um, but the mills are still not quite sure, so what they 've asked us to do is get together ten tons of material Whoa. so that they can start running tests at full scale on their equipment that they use every day, right, and if we can have a controlled experiment where we know okay, we have ten percent uh, post-consumer food service packaging going into this mix of all kinds of paper that's being put into this mill, Uh, we can track whether that's having any operational impacts or any, uh, you know, impacts on the end product.
2: Uh Um, and what kind of impact would it have? Would it be like a disease issue? Would it be like foodborne, uh, you know, like bacteria that would survive from say, uh, you know, an E. coli laden hamburger from Jack in the (laughs) box. You know, I mean, I'm trying to imagine how like anything like that, any of those bugs would be an issue. Like, I don't really get why they wouldn't want to recycle everything. Even if it had some ketchup on it for Christ's sake. Right. And what we
3: found, I mean, there is concern about that. It's not really founded. There's, it's, it's there's not really an issue with that the main concern we've heard from the mills is that they're worried about whether it will slow down their pulping process which is really an energy question and an sure. economic question yep. so um so that we're actually in the midst of a pilot where we're trying to get 150 locations together uh, we're approaching that goal very exciting um and once we have that number of locations we're basically going to wave the flag and say collection starts now and then the idea is with that many locations we can get 10 tons together in about two months
2: Wow, that's fantastic. Yep. And then if this pilot program succeeds, would, you're saying that other industrial paper production mills would follow suit? Exactly. Is it cheaper? In other words, they don't have to retrofit. They don't have to change anything. That's exactly. the key, right? Exactly. Because the only way you can get compliance for something like that is if they're not going to lose any money. Hence the worry about whether or not it slows down there. Yeah, exactly. And
3: that's, again, there's a lot of groups looking at alternative materials for paper Mm -hmm. and new products and new technologies. And all of that is really great. Um, What we're focusing on right now is more of an immediate, how can we maximize the infrastructure we have, the technology that we already have, the coffee cups we're already using, uh, and just recover more of it now.
2: Right. What about things like I know I've seen a lot of you and I'm sure everybody out there has seen it as well, but you know, bamboo products, that's like the mm-hmm. trendy new thing. You mm-hmm. have bamboo if you're a food service industry you know, player and you package all your stuff in bamboo containers instead of using plastic or styrofoam or something like that. Is that uh, is that ultimately environmentally sound? I mean you still have to grow, harvest you know, extract the pulp or whatever it is. However, they use it that process. Really I mean, depends. Yeah, and actually, I feel like that's a feel good measure that doesn't actually really fit the bill,
3: right? And one of the things that we're actually uh, working on is recyclability standards, and that would right. be a way of answering that question. Is saying, mm-hmm. okay, we have this new product made from bamboo or made of bagasse or whatever, any number mm-hmm. of new materials can it be recycled? And up until fairly recently, there weren't any standards around that. It was very hard to answer that question. Yeah. Um, Or each mill would sort of try to answer it for themselves. Um, So we're working with Western Michigan University, and they're actually creating new standards um, for specific end products. So one is looking at, um, can this be turned into cardboard boxes? Another is looking at, can this be turned into tissue and paper towels Uh and stuff like that? So um, And of course, what we're finding is, most of this food preserves, packaging stuff, it can be turned into those things. It's really not a big deal. Right. So, But it's great to have a standard, a way of measuring, you know, does it have these attributes at the end of the line? Mm. Is it the right color? Is it the
2: right texture, et cetera? Is the right strength? Yes. Is know? it going to look the same as every other pet thing that we've ever sold? Exactly. Which I can understand. That would be a, a tremendous concern. Yeah. Sure, sure. So we're going to take a short break, right, Joe? Very short break. Just, play <laughs> a, just drop the commercial and let's come right back with Lily Kelly, who is the interim director for the uh, – Uh, Coalition for Resource Recovery and Global Green USA's New York office. You're listening to Straight Note Chaser. We'll be right back.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA. Since the inception of the Heritage Turkey Project, more than 10 of Frank Reese's partner farms have converted to Good Shepherd from a corporate system whose weak protocols on husbandry, welfare, and genetics necessitated the use of subtherapeutic antibiotics at all stages of production. When Frank Reese started in 2002 he hatched 900 eggs in his barn. This year, 20,000 eggs were hatched. This is an enormous victory for sustainable agriculture and biodiversity. For more information and to order your heritage turkey today, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. And we are back. This is
2: Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiever, and my guest uh, in the studio today is Lily Kelly, who works with the Coalition for Resource Recovery and uh, Global Green USA, which is a division as we as we re- visited earlier <laughs> of of the Green Cross started by our former uh, you know, glasnost partner. <laughs> Mikhail oh, Gorbachev, I, I was just gobsmacked when I read that. I mean, I, I don't want to waste time on it now, but I just, it was really interesting to me that, you know, 25 years or whatever it is, 20 something years ago, Gorbachev is thinking about these things, and yet somehow it has absolutely pretty much disappeared from the American political climate. When I was growing up, um, you know, we were all very earthy, crunchy and environmentally <laughs> sensitive. And, and meanwhile, that was like totally a hippie thing. And now, you know, it's big business. And um, and there was Gorbachev thinking about water supplies when nobody ever thought about whether or not there would be water for developing countries, which, of course, we now know is going to be the source of all future conflict in the world.
3: Indeed. Well, and actually, one of the things I love about uh, Green Cross is the way that he worded their mission is reconnecting humanity with the environment
2: amazing i know incredible god who knew did that guy get a nobel peace prize or something i hope if he so has he should yeah absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um anyway so right now you guys are focusing on wholesale retail food packaging mm-hmm. um and uh i want to just like revisit that for a second and talk about you know the food packaging that you were mentioning earlier and how we can recycle that but um what you know when you talk about developing these new standards and encouraging industry mm-hmm. to go for for these um, these options, mm-hmm. I should say, um, you know it's hard to make companies change. Their uh, structure. It's hard to make them change their mindset. I mean, that's very true in the cattle industry, the livestock industry, farming and agriculture. They're all really resistant to change. It's scary. Uh, There's no measurable or demonstrable thing that's going to tell them it's going to be more profitable. So how, you know, when you measure these and you make these standards, isn't it still really difficult (laughs) to get that message across that not only is this worthwhile, but you won't lose money and maybe you'll get a tax credit for it in the future. Maybe, you know, like that, let's segue this into the, <laughs> the whole political process. Cause that's really kind of what interests me about it.
3: Well, and it makes a huge difference. It's not something we work on what I call corporate policy. Mm-hmm. So it's, and, You know, bureaucracies, bureaucracies. It's very similar kinds of things to lobbying uh, with an actual elected government. uh, But also, you know, corporations have similar sorts of structures. Right. Um, So what we try to do is, well, a couple of things. One is showing, making the business case. Um, and having good policies in place is so helpful for that. If we can say there's a subsidy for this or there's a feed-in tariff for this or whatever, it makes it a lot easier for us to make the case that you should make this investment in food waste recovery or whatever is right. you know, most relevant. Um, and then the other thing is what we do as an environmental advocacy organization is we like to tell the story. And we don't, you know, obviously we don't promote any particular company, but if there are companies that are contributing to a story, we can show that they're doing a good job, that they're being leaders in this area. And that's a really big value to a lot of companies right now. So they're interested in being part of that because they're going to get... Uh, recognition by their customers, by their peers. I was going to
2: say, it's a real great uh, piece of branding for marketing purposes. Exactly,
3: which is always, there's a balance there. And we always, again, we try to emphasize the story as opposed to any particular Mm -hmm. company.
2: It reminds me of BP, you know, British Petroleum, which is constantly touting right now, A, (laughs) the fact that it's very environmentally friendly, Mm -hmm. as we saw, and (laughs) B, that they provide an enormous number of jobs in this country, which is really what talks to people. Again, it's the whole pocketbook issue.
3: It's very true. And actually, not to get off on a – I know we're talking a little bit about policy here. Um, One of the most interesting things that's just come about in this region – it's not in New York uh, yet – But in Massachusetts, they've actually recently imposed a landfill ban for organics. Really? Um, And actually, Connecticut just did the same thing. And I see this as a huge job creator. Because yes. what, the way that it's structured is if you are a large generator, as they put it, of organic matter, um, and that means over a certain number of tons each year. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, going to be a lot of uh, hospitals, prisons, uh, grocery stores, places sure. like that where they generate a lot of organics. Um, and you're within a certain distance of a facility that can accept this waste – you have to send it there. You right. cannot put it in the garbage. Amazing. So what that means is, if I'm a person who wants to open a composting facility, all of a sudden it's a lot easier for me to go to the bank and get a loan because I have a guaranteed input. If I yes. position my facility close to large generators, they have to send their stuff to me, and it's, right. it makes it much easier to say I can make this work.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so, how? Tell me a little bit about the political process for how that came about, because that's a pretty um, that's a pretty radical. Uh, policy to make, to impose on people who, like you say, hospitals and prisons and the like.
3: It is indeed. And I actually, I, I wasn't involved, uh, and Global Green wasn't involved in that process at all. I can tell okay. you a little bit about it um, just because we had our big food waste conference uh, a couple weeks ago Uh uh, here in New York, and we had speakers from those uh, departments of environmental quality come and and tell us about it. So I can relay what they said. Uh, It was uh, different in Connecticut versus Massachusetts. In Connecticut, they did it through the state legislature. So they Mm -hmm. actually passed a law um, through the legislative process that said that. Um, And theirs is uh, any generator over 52 tons And it's, oh no, sorry, 104 tons, 52 tons is Massachusetts, um, and within 20 miles of uh, a facility that can accept it. In Massachusetts, they did it through a regulatory process. So it was done uh, through the executive branch, the governor's office essentially, um, and down through the Department of Environmental Conservation. And so, and it says 52-ton generators of anyone who generates more than 52 tons a year. Um, and it doesn't even have a, a radius wow. limitation. So, and that's going to kick in in 2014. So um, that, again, is a really great potential job creator for the state of Massachusetts. Totally. And
2: is there, and now that they have cre- passed this regulation, uh, is there funding to for startups? Is there, you know, is that, like, do they, have they taken it to the next step in that sense? I,
3: I'm not sure. I am not sure, personally. Yeah. Um, but there idea. is, there are a lot of companies, um, such as Pegasus, uh, capital that are doing investments um, uh-huh. in this area.
2: How fascinating. I just think that's amazing. So, um, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, any large scale composting projects besides that. And also how, you know, how this, when you talk about the difference between the legislative branch passing a law versus the executive branch passing a regulation, um, I, you know, to start with, how do you get those guys interested? I mean, my experience of Congress right now, especially in the last eight years, is like a bunch of yahoos. <laughs> You know, who really are, are so in ignorant. I mean, sadly, embarrassingly ignorant. I've decided that, that we need to have a litmus test for just general and basic scientific information. I mean, after all the Republican nonsense about women's reproductive organs uh, and how they work, uh, it's like, guys, I mean, really? Did you not take science ever? So then you wonder, and then and then the, the dismissing of, of climate change as, as something that is, you know... Um, uh, you know, a, a leftist um, conspiracy theory to try to drive business out of business. It's terrifying. You know? Yeah, it's really scary. So, so how do you get? I mean, what you guys when you put together a proposal, are you first you approach corporations, right? Because we were talking about this a little bit earlier. You approach a corporation, you say, "We think if you did this, it would be beneficial to you." Mm-hmm. And then, will the corporation then try to promote this amongst other industry peers, or does it? Will it go? to the legislature and say, hey, look at me. I'm doing something good. Give me a tax break. Hand over the cash. You know, like, <laughs> I'm sure I get Global Green isn't directly involved
3: in any of that. Um, but I'm sure it's, it's a combination of things. Yeah. Um, what, what we try to do is basically um kind of like what i said before we try to document the story as mm-hmm. well as we can so it would be something that could potentially be taken to a policymaker right and say look here's an environmental third party they're not promoting any particular industry they're not promoting any particular company they're interested in reducing climate change so assuming you believe in climate change yeah this that, should I mean, that's be a scary thing right and this should be of interest and it's certainly in the waste reduction industry uh and waste diversion industry i feel Feel like it's a pretty easy case to make in a lot of of circumstances where you say look here's something that has value this is a material that if you bail it up and put it on the international market someone will pay you for it right in most cases so why would you bury it in a hole yeah i mean it's it's really that simple um and there's actually already uh instances where they're starting to mine landfills uh huh. Because the materials in them are really valuable, well, but it's a lot more course. expensive. Yeah, to get it out of the ground and and sort of unsort it from the dirt and the landfill cover and, the trash. and, all, yeah, and all the right. other trash. Yeah, why not just separate it before it even goes through that process? Yeah, and reuse it. It's it's a pretty it's it's fairly simple in concept. So harder in execution.
2: But simple in concept. Well, harder maybe to set up. But I think once you have it set up, then it's like it's just bin one, bin two, bin three. Right. I mean, we have a landfill. I guess there is a landfill in Rhode Island. I mean, I don't have cartage haulage for my trash. So we everything has to be recycled. Mm. And, um, and then there's organic waste. And that goes into some magical place I don't know where <laughs> in its plastic bags, probably into a landfill. I mean, exactly what you don't want. So I'm just thinking, like, uh, just ch- t- retraining the population to think more clearly about their own personal, um, you know, contribution to greenhouse gas, what we were talking about earlier, the 17.9 tons, T O N N E S per capita. Uh, yeah, I mean.
3: I know, and it's really important, it's and actually – one of the more encouraging things that's happened uh, just in this past year was we're working closely with Prada which mm-hmm. those of you in New York... Um, and Wonderful company. Yeah. Oh, they're great. And they've been just a dream to work with. Um, and so we've been working with them, plus their packaging suppliers and their hauler, uh, to figure out how to divert more of their material. And they have an internal goal of uh, 75% diversion at their stores. So um, what we did was we put in uh, or we helped them put in a bin that had four streams. And a lot of people were like, oh, four is too many. People aren't going to get it. It's mm-hmm. not going to make any sense to people. But the four streams are compost. So front of house compost is that's pretty pioneering. There's not a lot. Of yes, places I've in never US, seen that anywhere. Right. Prenamaji is doing it, and it's it's working well. What we did was we had a we worked with them to do a waste characterization, where we actually this is fun for me. I yeah. got to get my hands a little <laughs> I can dirty. See you're a real geek. About oh, this I'm stuff. such yeah. a geek. So I get to put on the rubber gloves and the mask and go to the waste transfer station where yeah. they had a, some of their garbage from a couple of stores. And we sorted it. And we figured out what was in each stream. And uh-huh. what, what we wanted to know is, one thing, is it being contaminated? Are people sorting the trash or the recyclables properly? Right. And then the other thing is, you know, how much of the total recyclables are actually being captured? Right. And what we found was that people are doing a good job. Right. The customers really care. They They're are... actually, you know, the purity
2: was really good. Right. It was around So in 70- other words, everybody was putting their plastic forks in one bin and their paper plate in another and their organic trash exactly. exactly that's awesome
3: I know and it was really encouraging and especially in New York where people are not there's not a lot of that kind of separation going on people aren't used right. to it
2: it's not a normal cultural well, thing well we like to do it in our homes I mean that's true you do yeah. you know you've got your paper you got your, your <laughs> bottles and your cans and then you got your trash yeah so it's yeah. starting
3: to it's starting to kick in
2: do you ever see uh, we have to wrap it up in just a mm. second here but um, <laughs> do you ever see a time when um, New York City apartment buildings will have large composting bins in their basements
3: Ooh, that's a tough question. I really? don't know if I can really answer that because um, it really depends on the building. One of the things that we're looking at is small scale distributed uh, facilities that could accept this. Yeah. So it may not be in each building, but it could be potentially a place where it could accept it from several different buildings uh, and process it either into you know capturing the energy or at least turning it into dirt that could be used. Yeah, for, that's what I'm thinking. Like involving local
2: firms. Especially if urban farming takes off in, in New York, although after the hurricane, I'm not sure any of them are. I, mean, I think it's been pretty tough to rebuild. Those rooftop farms really took a beating, for instance. Oh, yeah. yeah, horrible. Um, but it, you know, I, I've always I've thought about that a lot, and I've I've I actually remember my piano teacher saying, you know, I really like to see this happen. You know, where we recycle everything and we compost in our buildings, and then I thought, you know. Yeah, why not? I mean, I already separate my trash. So why couldn't I just put it into a big bin and a drum and like and then have a farmer come and take it away, you know, three times a year or four times a year? Yes, it would probably be kind of smelly. But not if you put your wood chips in.
3: Right? Yeah, right. You got it. You, you got a compost manager,
2: in like where your superintendent's new job is compost management. Anyway, that's obviously down the pike. But I love that you're working with these big companies and that you're pushing industry along to really implement some of these programs. And it's nice to think that they can make some money off of it. I mean, I admit 265 million dollars a year you know in the grand scheme of things yes personally that would be an awful lot of money
3: but- <laughs> <laughs> well but, and those you know, are all actually rather conservative estimates I think. There's oh there's actually good. a lot more to be made there and especially as the cost of landfilling goes up it's yes. only going up yeah absolutely so i mean in the end it's going to make a lot of sense. and i
2: think we learned that land- building on landfill doesn't really work i mean yeah. battery park city yeah <laughs> All anyway, Lily, what do you what do you want to tell my listeners about how to find out more about Global Green, about um, Co- Coalition for Resource Recovery? Oh, I'm and-
3: glad you asked. Yeah. <laughs> so I I would, yeah. um, uh, our website is www.globalgreen.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, the core specific website, core meaning Coalition for Resource Recovery, uh, is www.thecore.org. Um, And actually, I'll put in a plug on one of our most recent and most relevant projects, which is we're helping with the Sandy reconstruction process. Oh, Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's
2: right. We talked about that. Okay.
3: We're bringing in a little bit of our expertise um, from our New Orleans office, which was founded shortly after Hurricane Katrina hit down there. Um, And they've been doing a lot of green rebuilding and green retrofitting of damaged homes, um, Mm -hmm. and in particular, low-income housing. So uh, the first initiative that's being launched here in New York is Solar for Sandy, uh, and They're working with solar uh, PV manufacturers to bring solar panels down to help with reconstruction potentially be permanent fixtures uh, in the hurricane-damaged areas.
2: Yeah, amazing. So in other words, those solar panels would capture enough... Current for people to power their houses instead of waiting for uh, you know Con Ed to get exactly their act together, and actually I'm sorry my apologies to the listeners but
3: you'll note I'm wearing boots right now I'm I actually about do notice I'm about to head down to the Rockaways right after I leave here actually oh, good for you uh, I was down there last weekend too um, and anybody who's been down there recently you've seen the down power lines it's going to be a while yeah. before the power well Roberta's back, so. actually
2: just hosted a fundraiser on Friday night and I was asking the manager Tom about it and they raised eighteen thousand nice. dollars in a pizza party oh. basically well the, awesome. oh, one of the owners of the restaurant owns properties in, in the Rockaways and they have a restaurant there so they they really took a hit mm. and plus they're, he's just you know Chris Paracini and his partners are just great people so um, I guess that's it we're gonna have to wrap it up unfortunately I could talk all day with you about this Lily <laughs> your wonderful guest oh, I, I really hope you'll come back um, next week folks uh, I'm going to be away because it's Thanksgiving. So my next show will be on December 3rd, and my guest will be Dr. Charles Benbrook, who is a leading research scientist in uh, the whole issue around GMO, um, who's going to talk to us about Proposition 37 and how it was um, squashed at the very last minute by big money, and um, and also the pros and cons of GMOs. I think it's a very complex issue. I don't think people really understand what the technology is, uh, what the implications are environmentally, and Dr. Benbrook is on the cutting edge of figuring out what those implications actually are. Instead of being a knee-jerk reaction, he's going to give us a scientific... Analysis of GMO crops which should be very very interesting so I hope you'll tune in for that and uh, this has been another fabulous episode of Straight No Chaser thank you so much Lily for coming good luck with the work in the Rockaways today and uh, Joe thanks so much and thank you to my sponsors and uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks have a nice Thanksgiving folks bye bye
1: thanks for listening to this program on Heritage Radio Network.org